Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, coronavirus in Europe. Will banks have to move operations and staff? Europe's investment banks in the US. Are they in full retreat? And Deutsche Bank in the UK. How bad are its compliance problems? Joining me in the studio to discuss all of this are my FT colleagues, Katie Martin and Stephen Morris, with Laura Noonan joining us from New York. And we'll also be hearing from our special guest this week, Miles Selleck, Chief Executive of the City UK, the industry-led body representing British-based financial services groups. So let's start with the coronavirus epidemic and its impact on financial markets. Some of Europe's banks and asset managers are now making contingency plans to shift their staff to off-site locations to prevent further outbreaks of the virus disrupting trading operations. As the global epidemic spreads, the ability to sustain large open-plan trading floors, which often house hundreds of traders and analysts in proximity to one another, looks increasingly under threat. UK regulators are checking banks' plans, and so far, trading systems have been operating smoothly. But some disruption seems inevitable, with the OECD now warning that the coronavirus could halve global economic growth this year and central banks are hinting that they may have to step in with some support. Katie, you've been looking at this. What can banks do about this? It's really tricky. I mean, if you've spent any time on a trading floor, you'll know they are huge open plan spaces. People are crammed in like sardines. And in addition, most of them are in Canary Wharf. And if you've been on the train at rush hour going down towards Canary Wharf, you'll know it's pretty difficult to avoid people. So this is a serious operational challenge for banks. Banks, like everybody else, have been doing all the sort of common sense stuff over the past few weeks. They've been restricting travel or at least people have needed you know, extra approval for travel. Little hand sanitizers are cropping up around offices everywhere. People have been relying more on video conferencing, that sort of thing. But Obviously, the markets have gone crazy recently on the coronavirus outbreak. And the last thing we need on top of that is for trading to be disrupted by people just physically not being able to get to their desks and do business. So banks have been looking at what their plans are for stepping this up. All banks have disaster recovery sites. They have to do this. And they've been making sure that they are fully operational. And some asset management firms also have been splitting their teams into separate buildings and saying, right, no cross-pollination between these separate groups of people. We don't want you coming into contact with each other. The disaster recovery sites, although they may not be perfect, they should work fine. What banks are really worried about and other trading firms are really worried about is what if that's not enough? What if you have effectively two sites and they both get infected? What if we have to send people home? 
that is trickier because you don't necessarily have all the hardware, frankly, that you need at home to do your job as a trader. And also, you don't necessarily have all the right kind of recorded lines and all that kind of thing. So banks might need a bit of help from regulators to effectively sign off on having certain key people work from non-secure, non-typical locations. Now, we're not at the point yet where anyone is moving teams over to disaster recovery sites, but people are much closer to the point of being able to do that at the click of a finger than they were a couple of weeks ago. They're taking this very seriously. Yes, the banks seem to be saying that they have the plans in place, so um, don't need to worry about that. But on your point about the regulators, presumably if people did have to end up working in a different location or at home, the point about complying with the various rules about recorded lines, etc., they'd have to change the regulation, would they? What we are hearing from banks across Europe at the moment is that they might just need a nod effectively from regulators to say, OK, these are extreme circumstances, you can do it. Most of the mobile phones that banks give to their staff for just day-to-day use are recorded anyway. And some of the software, like the kind of Bloomberg machinery that people use for trading, is available online on sort of more typical PCs than on the normal hardware, the black box terminals that people generally use on trading floors. So it's all a headache. It's possible to get around this stuff and it is possible to be prepared. But certainly it's true that they are massively stepping up their preparations just in case. And it does have a certain ring of inevitability around it at the moment. You know, this is what disaster recovery sites are for. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that news organisations might need to send people to work from home or from other locations or whatever. Everyone's in the same boat. But like I say, just mixed in with the volatility that we've got in financial markets at the moment, it is slightly scary to think that, you know, it just opens up inefficiencies. It opens up poor channels of communication when people aren't just working together and they can't all shout to each other. That's very much what trading floors are for. You know, on the margins, it might make trading conditions that bit more tricky. And presumably, if there is disruption to trading, if it becomes less efficient, the scope for volatility grows and markets just become, well, a riskier place. Yeah, I mean... The state that the markets have been in for the past 10 days or so, it would be difficult to pick the bones out of, okay, is is this part of the market volatility down to operational inefficiency or is it down to macro? But yeah, you can certainly envisage a situation in which just having people scattered around the globe trying to trade with kind of, you know, bits of sellotape and string is going to make matters worse. Yes, it's not going to help. Thanks, Katie. And a little earlier, I went to see Miles Selick, head of the City UK industry body, to ask about planning for coronavirus disruption. So any well-run industry has a series of contingency plans in place. These sorts of uh, viral outbreaks, these sorts of uh, potential pandemics are something that companies, particularly in highly regulated sectors like ours, are well prepared for in terms of uh, the sort of plans they have in place. So it's a case of taking those plans dusting them off, making sure that they are uh, appropriate to the situation uh, at hand, and in particular making sure that customers can continue to rely on access to the services that our industry provides, making sure that whether that's credit, whether that's the appropriate insurance or so on, that we are there able to support customers as and when they require it, and to make sure that we are also there as a way of reassuring people that activity will continue and things will go on. And in terms of the communication that you have, which bodies and entities are you in contact with to ensure that these plans are 
going to be enacted. So individual companies will have a close and ongoing dialogue with Treasury, with the regulators, with other government departments. We've been in contact with devolved administrations, national administrations at European and indeed at international level. So there is a huge flow of information here. And I think one of the critical things in any battle like this, such as the battle with the coronavirus, is making sure that those information flows are as rich and as regular as possible. And it sounds to me as if your overarching message to people is one of reassurance and people should not get too concerned about disruption to markets or activities. I think ultimately, if you look at this, the coronavirus is a particular category of its own, but we've had the swine flu incidents before, we've had SARS, we've had the bird flu outbreak. In each of these cases, companies have learned from the reaction to the outbreak and they've fine-tuned the programs that they've put in place and the plans they've put in place as contingencies. So there's a lot of previous experience that people can draw upon and that will be brought to bear as we move forward in this crisis as well. That was Miles Selleck, CEO of The City UK. But let's turn to European investment banks in the US now. HSBC recently became the latest to announce a scaling back of operations, saying its US trading business would cut its assets, as measured by risk, by 45%. That followed a 20% drop in profit last year. Similarly, Deutsche Bank has given up on becoming part of Wall Street's elite by closing its global equities business. UBS has already cut back much of its US bond trading business and Credit Suisse has pared back its investment bank and exited private banking in the US. It's also different from when Europe's banks were on a stateside acquisition spree back in the early noughties. Laura Noonan joins us now from New York. Laura, you just completed a major analysis of European banks in the US. They all had such high hopes when they ventured over looking to get into investment banking. What went wrong for so many of them? I think, unfortunately, an awful lot of things went wrong for them. I mean, the history of this is that European banks around the late 90s and early 2000s made a major put into the US market through a number of pretty big name acquisitions. Banks like Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, UBS, and then later Barclays, which bought Lehman in 2008, had hoped that they could use these big US franchises to build out major US businesses themselves and then to use that to capitalize on the US, which is the most profitable investment banking and markets venue in the world. Unfortunately for them, it's very hard to break into a market where there are such dominant domestic players. I mean, just talking to people who were involved in the various efforts, there was also a lot of cultural issues. The American decision-making process is very fast, the European decision-making process less so. There were issues around how well they really understood the business and how responsive they were. One executive I spoke to was talking about how the US banks were always very responsive to changing market conditions and they tweaked their business models as such, whereas the European banks favoured a more traditional business planning approach where you sit down at the end of every year and say, right, there was this rise in this category this year, therefore we're going to invest X next year and then we look at it again in 12 months time. So those kind of changes and differences in how they actually did business hurt. Another thing that's really hurt in the last decade or so is that the US economy recovered a lot faster from the 2008 crisis than the European economy did. That means that the US banks were able to support their investment banking and markets business with the massive profits they made from US retail banking, US commercial banking. In Europe, obviously, it's been a very different story. European lenders have had 
very challenged times in their own domestic businesses, that has meant they've had to cut costs in their investment banks rather than being able to invest in them and really make hay in the way that the Americans have. Yeah, it's clearly a tale of two very different markets in that sense. Did some of the European banks do better than others? So I think Credit Suisse historically has done the best and they're the only bank that broke into the top three in terms of US investment banking fees. The other banks did well in certain markets. So they would have done well in leveraged finance or in some of the trading businesses, but not really been one of the really top three, top four Wall Street players. More recently, when you talk to people, Barclays is the bank they have the most optimism about. What Barclays bought in Lehman Brothers was a very big franchise, had a massive name. And certainly the Barclays business, when you talk to people here, it's still very much viewed as the old Lehman business. There's a lot of old Lehman people there who are now in senior roles. So they have that heritage about them. They also have a sizable other US business in Barclay Card, and that's important because the one thing I should have mentioned earlier is the changing regulatory picture, which has really made things a lot tougher for foreign banks in the US generally. So after the crisis, they brought in these new rules requiring foreign banks to capitalise their entities here in the US, and that's very expensive. The thing about that, though, is that's expensive from a group perspective. If you're someone like Barclays and you can share the cost of this foreign bank holding company between Barclay Card and between the investment bank, the economics on that are a lot better than if you're someone like Deutsche, which hasn't got the same kind of broad footprint. So under the new regulatory structure, which is tough for everybody, it does favour banks who have a broader US presence. So by that I'm talking about Barclays, but also people like BNP Paribas who have a big retail network here, and also people like HSBC who have a big retail network and some other activities here. But given these challenges for the European banks, does this now mean that they are pretty much in full retreat? We've heard about the pairing back of business by HSBC and others. Is it only going in one direction now? Pretty much. I mean, certainly I don't think any of them would admit to being in full retreat. And what they'll talk about is how they're being more selective and they see pockets where they can compete. And actually, when you talk to investors, when you talk to people who use bank services, they do acknowledge the European banks are still significant players in some markets. Even Deutsche Bank, for all its retrenching and fixed income trading in the US, Deutsche is still important. So they are still important in certain markets. There are some selective investments going on. So when Deutsche Bank exited its prime brokerage business here last year, that's the business that basically does trading services and margin lending to hedge funds. That business was actually bought by BNP Paribas rather than by one of the US banks. So there are some selective investments, but I think as a general theme, they are pulling out more resources than they are pulling in. And to the extent you see investments and to the extent that you see success going forward, it will be a lot more niche. It will be in areas where they believe they have a true competitive advantage or areas where they believe that they're overall proposition will be incomplete without these things. If they think that their clients want these services in the US so much that it's important strategically, then they'll do it. But in terms of a European bank wanting to go toe-to-toe with a JP Morgan or a Citigroup or to really be one of the dominant forces on Wall Street, I think that's over. Yes, sounds like those days are gone. Laura, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And finally today, Deutsche Bank. In recent days, we have learnt that the UK financial regulator has criticised the bank for failing to improve its anti-money laundering and compliance controls. And it's a problem that could jeopardise the German lender's access to the UK after Brexit. People familiar with the matter say that the Bank of England has told Deutsche Bank that it now requires monthly updates instead of the normal quarterly meetings as concerns grow over compliance. 
Regulators are worried that there has not been sufficient improvement some four years after Deutsche was first censured and placed under special supervision by the Financial Conduct Authority for serious and systemic failings. Stephen, you've been following this incredibly closely. Why are Deutsche's problems taking so long to fix? Well, Deutsche Bank doesn't just have problems with its UK compliance systems or stability of its UK payment systems. It has these problems really around the world. They're facing the constellation of problems, including lack of cash to invest in IT infrastructure, which is on the back of a lack of investment really for years. So they really are playing catch up. Everyone is trying to boost their IT and compliance teams in London and around the world, which means competition for talent is very high and you have to pay for it. And also, in addition to that, HR have a huge backlog at Deutsche trying to fill some of these available positions. You combine that with negative news flow about Deutsche and a lot of departures, and you have a situation that isn't getting the attention and certainly doesn't have the manpower that it needs. The fact that the PRA at the Bank of England is taking this so seriously now, they're dragging in top executives every month for status updates, really shows them turning up the pressure ahead of this December 31st post-Brexit reauthorization deadline. And there are sort of very eye-catching errors that still seem to be made. I mean, two that I wrote about this year were in mid-January, somehow, I can't quite work out how, Deutsche Bank managed to send 12,500 payments data relating to 500 different clients to Amazon, one of their other biggest clients. And nobody can quite work out how this happened, but obviously... That's a huge breach of client confidentiality and data protection laws. They then dawdled a bit before telling the regulator, leading some people internally to warn that they might be breaching principle 11 of the FCA code, which is you should tell your regulator everything they should expect to know in a timely fashion. And then they have these ongoing problems with their access to the UK high value payment system, which is called CHAPS. Hundreds of thousands of companies rely on banks to process this for their payroll, for general corporate uses, buying stock, etc. And Deutsche can't really seem to stop having major outages. There was one just a few weeks ago that left them unable to access the system for up to three hours in the middle of the day. Then what Deutsche Bank has to do is request that the CHAP system stays open from 4.30 when it usually closes to 6.30 in the evening so they can process all of these payments that should have been done real time in the middle of the day and then claim that they're still doing sort of same day service for their clients. But Deutsche is quite a frequent user of this service and the Bank of England would certainly like to see the reliability of their systems improve, which is of course a prudential issue, not only for Deutsche Bank but for all the companies using its services. It certainly is. So what is the bank saying about the fixes that it's going to put in place and when is it going to get them done by? Well, I mean, I think the bank realises that Deutsche knows this is a priority and the statement they gave us talks about the amount of money they've earmarked to invest in this globally, the amount of anti-financial crime and compliance specialists they're hiring in. But basically, the best way to get the regulators off your back is to report a month without any major systems outages or any major data protection mess-ups. And Deutsche Bank at the moment doesn't seem to be able to do this for one reason or another. So basically the regulators have fired a shot across the bow of Deutsche. I mean, it's a very remote possibility that their reauthorization as a third-party branch would be delayed from the end of the year. I mean, that would be a drastic, and because Brexit is new, an unprecedented step for a major international lender. But the very fact that this prospect is being raised in meetings is a clear warning that uh, regulators are reaching the end of their patience. Certainly. And just lastly, do you get a feel that they're getting a grip of this now? 
Well, they're certainly starting to get the message that they need to throw money and resources at this problem. But um, this is all very opaque and we rely on sources to tell us and give us windows into what's going on. So in terms of the overall reliability and technology picture at Deutsche, there's still a lot of work to be done, which the new CEO, Christian Saving, has inherited after years of underinvestment and tight costs. You know, he really is trying to play catch up on a very limited budget. Yeah, it's very clear what the priority needs to be now, certainly. Stephen, thank you very much for that. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Stephen Morris, to Laura Noonan, to Katie Martin, and to our special guest, Miles Selick, Chief Executive of the City UK. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banks. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>